Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We are smack dab in the middle of bank earnings season uh, with J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo reporting today. We've seen some rough results out of the banks for their fourth quarter. Uh, uh, Joining us now to kind of bring us up to date on what's going on with the big uh, money center banks and the investment banks is Charles uh, Pibidi, president, Portalis Partners, longtime uh, analyst on the street covering the banks. So, Charles, thanks for being with us. Um, what have you seen so far? We've had Citi, J.P. Morgan, Wells report. What have you seen in, in the results? Well, thanks, Paul. Um, yeah, I, you know what intrigues me um, the most is the insistence by these companies that they're meeting their expense targets, and and they certainly are in absolute dollar terms. But none of these guys are hitting their efficiency ratio targets which, as you know, includes a numerator related to revenues, I mean, a denominator related to revenues. And so they're falling short on their revenues. And, and that's the big disappointment. Uh, you know, and I think that's what has caused this whole multiple revaluation of the stocks during the course of 2018. It was the, the expectation that revenues would slow or disappoint. So, so far, do you think that the, disappoint, the disappointing revenues has already been baked into the share prices here? Yes, I, I do think it has. And so I've sort of indicated that I thought the first leg of the bear market has concluded um, and that a relief rally is in, in place right now. But the second leg of the bear market is out there, you know, ready to start at some point, maybe spring, summer, I don't know. Um, and it's going to be characterized by deteriorating credit. And you, and you are starting to see some early signs um, of, of that likely to happen. So, Charles, you've been, I think, pretty spot on, on on these banks. You got cautious in October. You downgraded some of the names uh, in December ahead of the, the, this earnings. 2019, you know, City seemed to have, had the CFO seemed to have some moderately positive outlook for 2019. Do you share that optimism? I, I don't in terms of, of where they're headed. I mean, you know, they had promised a 200 basis point improvement in operating efficiency in 2019. They walked that back yesterday on the call um, and started to take a page out of Wells Fargo's, um, you know, approach and say, well, we think we can keep expenses flat around 42 billion, but we're not going to promise more than, you know, a 90 to some plus 90 basis point improvement in, in efficiency. So they're already walking back, you know, some of the expectations in 19. And it really is related to the uncertain revenue environment. You know, I think short term, you know, on a trading basis, you know, the revenue disappointments have been discounted. But I don't think the credit disappointments that are coming have been discounted yet. All right. Talking about credit, now we get to talk about debt. And I'm very excited, of course, because that's that's where I feel most comfortable. But Guy, Guy LaBasse, actually, of Janney uh, Montgomery Scott, came out today and said that two banks, Citigroup and J.P. Morgan, have reported increases in loan loss, provisions, and credit costs. And he takes this as an indication that they're preparing for the credit downturn, even if that's not what they're saying outright. Do you agree? I do. Um, in, in fact, um, you know, J.P. Morgan got caught here in the fourth quarter um, being a little bit too aggressive in the capital markets arena. Um, they did see a big jump in loans held for sale 
that were put on non-accrual status. And I'm guessing, and I don't know this, but I'm guessing that it's related to some of their leverage lending or hung loans for the syndications of uh, buyouts. But, um, you know, there, there are indications. There, there are two good Bloomberg functions, if you have a Bloomberg terminal, that are worth looking at. And we do. One is You're speaking um, BCY Go. And if, if your listeners can put that up on their terminal, it shows the concentration of where bankruptcy filings are occurring, and then it also shows the most recent bankruptcy filings. And the second one is um, uh, the symbol is B-N-K-R-I-N-D-X index go and it shows the pace of bankruptcy filings and you your bottom line is you're seeing a tick up in fourth quarter bankruptcy filings in the corporate world and i, I think that's a, a, a forerunner of, of more things to come so charles on the cost side of the equation do you think these big money center banks and investment banks are they right sized for kind of the revenue environment that is likely to occur we're likely to see over the next several years you know, it, it's, you're going to have to answer that um, business by business. You're, you're going to see more downsizing, for example, in the mortgage banking business. You're probably going to see more downsizing in the wealth management business. Um, so it is a business by business, um, you know, situation. Uh, I, I would say what we are facing, you know, in the course of 1920 is a earnings recession for these banks as opposed to a balance sheet impairment. In other words, I do think these banks will come through the next downturn with their capital intact. Um, and, and so they'll come out of that recession day one, ready to invest in their businesses and, and build, as opposed to repairing their balance sheets for two or three years after the recession ends. So the good news, they might not have to get bailed out by the U.S. government. The bad news, they're not going to make that much money. In fact, they're going to see their earnings decline. Thank you so much, Charles Peabody. Thank you uh, for your insights. They always are uh, welcome and usually spot on. President of Fortalis Partners. Let's talk Brexit. Theresa May faces what is likely to be a disappointing vote for her, possibly the biggest disappointment of her tenure as Prime Minister of uh, Great Britain. Joining us now to speak with us about Brexit is somebody who has called economists charlatans and crackpots when it comes to supporting Brexit. Danny Blanchflower, professor of economics at Dartmouth College, as well as the ex-Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee member, joining us now. So um, please explain, Professor. Well, I think the claims that the people who thought that there would be a Brexit, a hard Brexit, and everything would be easy and all the, uh, the negotiations would um, deliver um, easily were completely wrong. Here we are today in a position of complete chaos. Um, I was reading a book by Nicholas Shakespeare. It's called Six Minutes in May, and it refers back to May 1940, when actually six minutes of voting in Parliament brought Churchill to power. It's probably the most consequential vote since then, Um, but I would say chaos reigns. I mean, we have really no idea uh, what the heck the outcomes are going to be, and everything's on the table. And I think perhaps you understated how cataclysmic this vote is. The only question, I think, is how badly Theresa May 
loses, she'll probably lose by the biggest historic margin ever seen. I mean, in the UK, governments lose votes by eight or ten votes. Several of the newspapers today are calling that she may well lose by over 200. So this is, this is really, you know, we're sitting watching chaos being made. So, Professor, this is clearly uncharted territory. Yeah. Let's say that Prime Minister May does, in fact, lose and lose big, 150, 200 right. votes. Where do they go from there? Well, I, I, I thought you'd ask me that question. I wrote down five things, none of which you can rule out. I mean, if she loses by, if May loses by a number of around 200 or so, prospects are, and she says she's going to give a statement straight afterwards, the first prospect is actually the prime minister may quit. So that's on the table. Another possibility is actually that there'll be no Brexit at all. That's still now on the table. Another possibility is that Article 50, which is the date at which um, Brexit occurs, um, it would be extended. And another possibility, all of these are on the table, another possibility, which is probably the most likely, I think, now, is that there will be a second referendum. And, of course, then you'll say to me, well, what's the question in the referendum? I don't know the answer to that. So all of those things are on the table. I think the one that's most unlikely right now is a hard... Brexit with no deal. I think the really? Parliament has moved against that, but this is going to be pretty exciting. All of those things are on the table today, all based upon, I mean, we're just simply talking about how badly she's going to lose, I think. That's really where we are. And the question is, I mean, I called on Bloomberg, I said about a month ago that Theresa May was a dead woman walking. That's probably where we are. What's your view on the pound from here? Yeah, I mean, I think that the risks are clearly to the downside. That's exactly what the MPC has said. Um, um, they're, they're, that's their biggest concern. Obviously, we've seen it drop somewhat. I mean, I think, I think the biggest piece of evidence here is that businesses have really worried about the uncertainty that's going on. Um, and investment has, has been falling for the three quarters in a row. In some way, I think the pound is going to be impacted um, in a way once we know where things are going here. Once we have a clue which of the options that I put on the table, there, no Brexit, Brexit, a second referendum and so on, I think that some of that uncertainty gets resolved. Um, but I, it doesn't appear to me that anything looks very great. And I wrote a column last week, I think, in The Guardian, where I said all the options are either bad, horrendous or disastrous. And I think that's probably where we are. Risk to the pound to the downside. And if there's a hard Brexit, then I think the risks really are to the downside. And the question could even come to... So we get to dollar pound parity. I mean, I think the Brexit, hard Brexit would really be a disaster for, yeah. the, for the pound. And that's what the Bank of England has said in its inflation report and um, in its comments recently. Paul, whenever I speak with Professor Blanchflower, I always wonder, how does he really feel? How does he really feel? Right? <laughs> we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> so, Professor, let's let's go across uh, the English Channel and to, to, to Brussels. What do you think the European Union would like to see here? What's kind of a a best-case scenario from their perspective? Well, I think they want to see calm and calm nerves. I mean, part of the reason for that particularly is that, that we've seen data now with Sweden, Italy, Germany having negative growth in, 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 the, in the last quarter, European sentiment indices being low, German industrial production being low. So again, the uncertainty is obviously something you want to see resolved. But I think, I think the 27 have been pretty darn united and their concern, obviously, is that you don't want it to be another, another one. You don't want ITEXIT and, 
you know, any of these other countries thinking of leaving. So their position has been a pretty tough one. I think they're going to respond by the nature of the vote. One possibility is to go back and renegotiate again. I mean, the possibility still is that we could have a different government and that and they'll go back. But they've been pretty firm saying, you know, there are benefits of being a member of the club. If you want to have those benefits, you have to pay. And if you want to leave, then you can't just have an a la carte menu. And I think they're going to stick with that. Um, and, and I think the big deal for them is pretty darn much they've spoken with one yeah. voice, which is pretty hard for 27 people around the table. Yeah. So I think they're going to try and prevent that from cracking. Professor Danny Blanchflower, thank you so much for your time. A professor of economics at Dartmouth College, also a former Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee member, talking about that Brexit vote. I am eager to learn more from George Magnus, economist and associate at the China Center for Oxford University, also the former chief economist of UBS, author of the book Red Flags, Why Xi's China is in Jeopardy. Uh, love having you on the show. Let's just talk about trade. What does the U.S. want from trade negotiations with China and, and vice versa? What is China hoping to get out of them? Um. So I think the easier question for me is what, is, what does China hope to get out of it? They hope not to have the 25% tariff uh, taken out of deep, out of the cold storage. They don't want to change anything. They, they don't want any, they want the status quo. They want, uh, you know, wherever President Trump was in terms of his, you know, uh, suspension of the tariffs, not broadening them to the rest of imports from China. They want that status quo to, to remain because, uh, because their trade position is starting to hurt not just because of the tariffs, but it is starting to hurt. And it's it's joining all the other things we were talking about earlier, which are uh, weighing on the economy. What the American side wants out of it may be different. Now, uh, President Trump may want different things out of this from his US trade representative. I'm not sure how this is all going to play out. Um, but I suppose the, the narrow win, if that's the right word, way to put it, would be uh, you know the appearance of a deal which is good for the equity market and good for business confidence. I don't think there's too much more into it. I mean, obviously, it would be good for American farmers and for energy producers and for uh, some other companies if um, the Chinese agreed to step up their purchases of these products. Uh, no question about it. So there are some interest groups for whom it would be good. But from the point of view of what does the United States get out of this? I'm not sure, other than very kind of transient, short-term kind of business equity market benefits, whereas what they want is a substantial change in the things which are really, really difficult to negotiate, which is tech transfer, intellectual property infringement, uh, ownership caps on foreign businesses, market access and opening and so on. These things are going to be hard. So, George... To what extent is the is the trade dispute between the U.S. and China impacting the Chinese economy? Do you believe, and maybe how much pain do you think that they can take before maybe they have to engage in more substantive conversations with the U.S.? I think looking backwards, uh, let's say over the last twelve months, <clears throat> the the trade dispute or trade war didn't really have that much impact on China's economy, um, and what impact it may have had. Uh, was probably offset by incremental easing of uh, reserve requirement ratios on banks and tax cuts and uh, easier regulatory uh, environment and so on. So it was a bit of a wash. But I think um, 
if those 25% tariffs had begun on the 1st of January and they had been broadened to the other half of imports into the United States from China, um, this would have had a, probably an impact of about one, one and a quarter percent of GDP this year. It's, it's that meaningful. So uh, really important from a Chinese perspective that this does not happen. So let's talk about the thornier issues that go beyond just uh, some kind of cosmetic deal that gives a boost to the number of soybean bushels that China imports uh, from the U.S. What could be on the table, say, come 2020, and what is on the table for European countries that are also negotiating with China? Yeah, now this is really interesting because just imagine that uh, the relationship between the United States and European countries and uh, Japan, Korea, and so on were, you know, great, you know, that there hadn't been any disputes, any, any kind of bad blood about, and with Canada, of course. Um, then uh, I think... Always the, forgetting Canada. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the, you know, I think the Western, the, you know, the, the Western negotiating position on China, I think, would be much stronger. And, would, and I think the Chinese would, um, would be certainly cognizant of that fact. But as it is... Um, President Trump has has kind of awoken, uh, you know, kind of a sleeping demon or something like that. So it's not just the White House that is uh, starting to get or has gotten tough with China or tougher with China about trade and investment rules and, you know, what kind of investment we're prepared to accept and what not. But in London and Berlin and Brussels, Paris, um, you know, Tokyo, Seoul, I mean, it's Everybody's basically singing from the same hymn book. And in fact, there were data published um, just uh, within the last day or two that showed that the amount of Chinese foreign direct investment into the United States, Europe and Canada last year was about $30 billion, which was a quarter of what it was in 2017, and pretty much that ratio for 2016 as well. So that's fallen off a long way. And a, and a good part of that is much greater scrutiny over the kind of sectors and companies that we are prepared to allow Chinese investment to come into. So George, when I think about the negotiating position of China in this dispute, uh, I often wonder about the position of President Xi. How secure is he in his position within China? I guess externally it seems very strong, very secure, but is that the case? Well, yes, it is the case. He he is, I mean, I don't see any threat to his leadership or to his position. Um, and I think it would be, the, 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 the optics would be different if there were uh, something going on. But that said, I think it is of note that during the last 12 months, we have seen the emergence of what I call disquiet, okay, from professors, intellectuals, uh, even subtly from some senior party officials. Not everybody is happy with his approach to the United States over trade, with his approach to the Belt and Road Initiative, and with his approach to the economy. So could there be meaningful pushback from inside of China right now? Well, I don't really see because these people who are, you know, who are exercising the disquiet are really not in a position to push back. And they the state is very powerful. The party is very powerful. Um, I think President Xi Jinping would probably have to step out of line. Somebody would have to uh, he would have to take on the blame for something that had gone really wrong um, for any pushback within China. But I think at the moment that's not the case. But you never can tell with authoritarian people. And I'm sorry, I was just going to, you know, what's the, the big business in China? How much pressure are they feeling? Or how much pressure maybe are they putting on the negotiators and she and the government to get something done? 
Uh, well, I don't really think that the when you say big business, you mean big domestic business. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, it, well, it's very hard for that kind of that lobbying effect. I mean, you don't really know what happens behind behind closed doors. You know, between leaders of the party and uh, you know the chief executives of, of major corporations. But you imagine that um, there's probably you know not much more than a cigarette paper between what the government thinks and what the what the corporations think. Yeah. Which is um, you know we need to resist. Uh, pressure from outside and we need to come away with as as much as we can offer without compromising our principles. George Magnus, a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for being with My us. My pleasure. Thank you. George Magnus is economist and associate at the China Center for Oxford University, also former chief economist at UBS, author of a new book, Red Flags, Why Xi's China is in Jeopardy. Right now, I want to talk about the battle of the behemoths in the healthcare industry. Walmart coming out and saying that it will leave CVS Health's network that administers drug benefits for millions of Americans. Joining us now in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, Drew Armstrong, team leader for U.S. healthcare at Bloomberg News. So what's going on here, Drew? Well, so, you know, if, if you think about CVS and you're a normal person, you know, you probably walk around, you see the pharmacy on the street, you pick That's up your drugs there. That's a big postulation there, and, if you know, you're a normal person. I, I don't know who's going to raise their hand. Well, I won't go that far and call you normal, but I will say a regular person Thank with you. set eyes who, you know, walks around on the street to New York City, you've got a, you've, you know, you know CVS because it's a drugstore. It's where you, you know, you go and buy, you know, toilet paper, pick up a prescription. But actually about 60% of their business is something called pharmacy benefits management. And essentially what they do is they sell their services to health insurers and big employers like Bloomberg, for example. And they say, hey, there's thousands and thousands of drugs out there. You got to negotiate the price of each and every one. You also have to you know, get a network of pharmacies where you can go pick this stuff up. We'll handle it all. They're basically a middleman for this super complex market. What they do is they charge their employer and insurer clients uh, a fee for their services, and then they pay the drugstores uh, in order to dispense the drugs. And so you know, all right, now look at Walmart. Walmart, it's got about 5,000 stores. They've got a drugstore in each one. That means CVS is paying these guys a fee every time that someone walks into a Walmart and says, hey, I need a prescription, you know, my, my prescription for my Lipitor. Walmart said, you are not paying us nearly enough for this. This is essentially a dispute over prices. And this got bad enough that Walmart was willing to say, we are going to walk away from one of the biggest biggest PBM networks here. Now, CVS has tons of stores everywhere. So does Walmart. You're not dealing with a lot of geographic overlap here necessarily. So it's, you know, people are saying it won't be that big of a hit to CVS for that reason, because they have stores where they can steer their drug customers. That said, this is a pretty big shakeup. And I think the really meaningful stuff could be what comes next year. So, all right. So we've got Walmart, we've got CVS, as you mentioned, two of the, you know, the biggest players in the business basically having a, a tiff over price. Is there an expectation that this will get resolved at some reasonable period of time? It just seems like these are two big players. They have to do business with one another. You know, I think when we looked at the public statements out of these companies, it was pretty surprising. Walmart came out swinging pretty hard. I mean, they basically said this has been, you know, bad for healthcare, bad for our customers. We don't want to play ball on this anymore. Uh, most of the time, these are disputes that 
do get resolved quietly, discreetly. I mean, this is like a this is a B two B thing, where you know it has impact on real on, on on real folks. But yeah, most of the time this gets worked out. This has turned ugly, and there has been a lot of pressure on these pharmacy benefit managers. They're getting it from both sides. They're being criticized by you know the administration and drug makers for having a role in keeping drug prices high, and now they're getting criticized by pharmacists who are saying, hey, you're 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 hosing us on this, and we can't get enough money to run our business effectively. So just to give you a sense of what the market reaction has been Walmart definitely coming out ahead. Uh, shares up 1.3%, CVS down more than 1%. I'm wondering from your perspective how this reflects the bigger issue here, which is big corporations in the United States taking on the bargaining power themselves. I mean, is there any talk of Walmart potentially acting as its own pharmacy benefit uh, administrator and just sort of bypassing CVS entirely? I think a lot of big employers and insurers and anyone who spends a lot of money buying drug benefits have looked at this industry and said, is there a way for us to do this better ourselves? And there has been a lot of pressure on any kind of middleman in healthcare to say, you know, justify why you're here for us, justify why you're not just, you know, taking rents out of here. And these guys will fairly argue a lot of times, these are really complex benefits. We handle something that other people don't want to do or can't do. I think that there's also a perception by some of their business partners that they started as one thing, which was a relatively discreet kind of middleman entity managing some really tough stuff, and then have since grown into a a business that figures out to add on fees and profits and do all sorts of stuff through opaque contracting. I mean, that's the criticism of these guys that it turned into a massive profit center as opposed to just being a you know a service provider that's relatively benign so does the market expect or does the industry expect more of these disputes coming down the road here i think you're going to see more disputes like this where you do have you know big pharmacy chains, big employers, insurers, pushing back on the folks who kind of exist between them and the patient or between them and the customer. There's immense pressure in the U.S. right now to deal with healthcare costs, to squeeze money out of the system. And people looking at this and saying, there, you know, between the end customer and, you know, the doctor prescribing this stuff, we've got five different layers of companies. Do we need them all? CVS, you know, to be fair, just bought Aetna, a giant insurer, in order to simplify and vertically integrate a lot of these things for some of the same reasons. So, I mean, this is, you know, they are, they're both be feeling this pressure and creating some of it themselves. Yeah, and perhaps even uh, trying to set up for a time when they are cut out, if they are cut out of the picture, have diversified business. Drew Armstrong, thank you so much for hey, being with us. Uh, really, really great rundown of what's going on here. Drew Armstrong is team leader for U.S. Healthcare at Bloomberg News, joining us here in our 1130 studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.